my philosophy is every dollar you discount takes $10 off the market capitalization of the company. It's so easy to go on discount and to sell the soul of the brand over a three or four year period and make the numbers look really good, which makes the CEO look like a hero to Wall Street, but has really undermined the value of the brand. Welcome everybody to In Conversation with Shopify Plus. I'm your host, Jason Buckland, and we thank you for being with us for our interview series where we speak with the very best and brightest in business. Our guest today headlines our season finale episode, and there is certainly good reason for that. He is Chip Wilson, the billionaire founder of Lululemon, who is known across the world for many things, including as a true pioneer of what we now call vertical retail, and also as the shepherd of the fashion category we now call athleisure. Chip left Lululemon in 2015, but has not simply been living out his days climbing the mountains of British Columbia in Canada. He is a serious investor in some brands you know well that we'll get into. And of course, much of Chip's legacy is that he is as candid and forthcoming as you can be. And indeed, we will talk about that and also get Chip to make sense for us many things about the state of retail and e-commerce today. Stick around with us for the next little while because Chip is going to go deep on the dangers of discounting, the consequences it can have for brands, and even the precise hit it can have on your company's market cap. He is going to address a topic many are curious about, which is his relationship with Lululemon today. And we are going to get into a very transparent discussion about what Chip sees as the inherent risk of companies wholesaling their products and losing control for even one minute of how your brand shows up in the marketplace. I think what we're seeing is a death of wholesale. If you had to look at the companies that are surviving now and the ones that are dying, anyone in wholesale is dying. Lululemon's got the purest brand because it doesn't sell to anybody else, so there's absolutely no discounting, total control of the brand, and not having it go through wholesalers who interpret it as they want to, which I think is the death of brand. All right, let's bring him in now. Our guest today is the founder of a lot of things, but you may know him most as the founder of Lululemon. He is Chip Wilson, who joins us from his home in Vancouver. Chip, it's great to be with you. Thank you for joining us on In Conversation with Shopify Plus. Uh, my pleasure, Jason. Love Shopify. Good job. <laughs> Chip, you are no longer in an active capacity with Lululemon, nor with Kitten Ace, the clothing brand you founded with your family in 2014 and sold out of four years later. But it's not entirely accurate to say you're sitting on the sidelines of retail these days. You're an investor in many brands, most notably in names like Arcteryx, not to mention your sizable remaining stake in Lululemon itself. So all that's to say is that you do still have plenty of skin in the game. What have been your observations on the state of the industry these days? And just what kind of mark do you think 2020 is going to leave on retail as we move forward? Well, there's no doubt that the crisis has moved the technology, what I call the hockey stick, 10 years in advance overnight. That wouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Everyone's moving to e-com, everyone's moving digital. As e-com has been eating into retail stores, even if it takes away 20% of the sales of a retail store, it makes the retail store unprofitable. So right now we're in a time when probably half of the retailers are going to go bankrupt unless landlords really move quickly and cut their rents in half. Maybe in two years from now, rents will be half of what they are now. And then I think it's going to be a great opportunity for all these small brands and retailers to move back in, do retailing, but then have 
e-commerce, something like Shopify, right alongside them. We won't see stores as we did before. Almost half the store could be set up to only sell e-commerce, and the other half of the store could only be set up to sell right then and there for people. Had 2020 happened during your tenure leading Lululemon, do you have a sense of what the most important considerations you would have had to make? for the company to weather this storm? Well, I always go back to 2008. I don't think it's it's any different. Never let a good crisis go to waste. I think it's the best thing that ever happened to Lululemon at the time. And I think what we're gonna see, this is gonna be the best thing that's gonna to happen to a lot of businesses. For instance, at that time, I'd been holding off on doing e-commerce at Lululemon for a couple of years because I couldn't even supply our own stores. The brand was just so hot, but we brought in e-commerce and it really helped us move our inventory. Because we started so soon on it and we had such great demand, I think our ability to make a great e-commerce platform was phenomenal. Someone like Shopify or Lululemon probably growing so fast, there's a bunch of things that you wish you could get at, but there's just so much money to be made you can't get at the processes and by having a year to slow down and get feet underneath us. But I think that the companies that have any kind of solid foundation and aren't losing money hand over fist are going to come out at the end of this Darwinism and do phenomenal. But if they're using this time to really get their processes down, get their people culture down, their people development. So when the time comes to grow, you can grow exponentially. We touched on retail a little bit. And retail in the bricks and mortar sense, at least, has obviously become a difficult proposition for many brands these days. And I heard you suggest partial store reopenings are in fact more costly and perhaps more damaging for companies than by simply staying closed altogether. Can you help us understand that idea a little further? Let's say a restaurant or a retail store, you know, doing 100% capacity, it's making a profit. But the underlying costs of running a business like that with the rent, the light, the employment, wages, etc., it actually probably the business breaks even if it did 80% in that revenue. But already before COVID, the e-commerce was already eating into that 20%. It actually eaten it up. So I'd say most retailers were at best breaking even. COVID just like took it over the edge. I don't see any businesses being able to survive, very few being able to survive in this realm unless they're feeding something that the COVID actually moved forward, like food or maybe even a printer that's printing for, you know, all the signs that have to go out, somebody in plexiglass who's making all the barriers. I mean, there's lots of businesses that are actually doing great. And it's kind of what we call that K recovery. Some businesses are going up and taking advantage and then some are falling off. I'd say easily half the retailers or Main Street people in, in North America and in Europe won't be able to make it. Chip, we'll return to a few current affairs a little later in our chat if we can. But for now, let's explore a bit more of your story in life and in business, if that's all right with you. Sure. Goal setting has become one of your hallmarks. You're impassioned about it. You're intentional about it. When you were growing up, indeed, you set a few goals for yourself. You said you wanted to buy a home by 20, own your own company by 30, and by 40, achieve financial independence. Where did that thread go from there? What goals might you have set for yourself for 50 60 and 70. Yeah, when I sold West Beach, when I was snowboard company, was about 40 and I started into Lululemon, I set new goals. And the first goal was I wanted to own a house on the beach in Vancouver, and that would have probably been around $7 million. And then I had another goal of having $30 million in the bank. And I thought, boy, that's an audacious, big, phenomenal goal. Will it ever happen? Geez, I don't know, but that's what I'm going for. 
What was interesting about that is that I think I took, I had a risk profile at Lululemon about how to run the business and how fast to grow it and how to do it that matched up with those goals. Probably because I was an older entrepreneur as opposed to a younger entrepreneur. If I was younger, I probably wouldn't have had those same goals. So Lululemon officially launches in 1998, and there are a few things you do with the company early that are really interesting. The first I wanted to chat about, Chip, is how you approach marketing. You presided over the strategy for Lululemon where you don't just begin by splashing retail stores all over the place. Before committing significant resources to a store in a new city, maybe a year in advance, you arrive with a pop-up shop or some kind of temporary activation to get some buzz going. And then if that works, you decide it's right to invest money in that new geography to open up more officially. So you created word of mouth marketing for Lululemon and Anyone that's ever read a business textbook knows that's the best kind of marketing, but few maybe know how to do it really well. As specific as you can be, in its early days, what were the ways that Lululemon managed to achieve results with word of mouth marketing? Well, I think it came out of, what is that invention is mother necessity or something like that. I forget what the term is, but I mean, we had no money. And I think going through the surf, skate, snowboard industry, it was really easy to garner editorial in magazines. The same thing happened in yoga then. We were easily there at almost a decade before anybody else. So that whenever an article was done, we got it. That's kind of authentic editorial advertising, if you can put it that way. As far as the stores go, we fell into that pop-up store by mistake and nobody had ever done it before because no one brand that was designing their own clothing, manufacturing their own clothing, had their own retail store. There was always a couple middlemen in there. We found out that by opening up our own store, we were doing it on a shoestring budget with almost no money and letting the quality of the product and the quality of the development of our people be what people went into the store to buy. We put out a better quality product at a better price than any of our competitors, so nobody could compete with it. So then people come in, try the product on. It was radical for a lot of different reasons, but then people go and talk about it. Now, what I noticed prior to this is that someone like Nike would sponsor Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods or something like that, but I really got or an intelligent 32-year-old who's been to a marketing class and understood media, understand that those athletes were being bought. Where by having pop-up stores that were in the middle of a neighborhood and we would work with the yoga studio and they would become our community and those were our heroes and it didn't cost us very much. They were the people that really did the talking for Lululemon. We just did it organically. We never pushed, we always pulled. Another thing that Lululemon does in the late 90s is if you don't precisely invent vertical retail for a brand operating in your space, you're darn close to doing so. At that time, if you are a brand, you most often made your goods and sold them at another company's store, a department store, a big box store, a store at a mall that did not have your name on the sign, whatever it was. But you observed that, in essence, by selling your own goods, you're the manufacturer, the wholesaler, and the retailer, and you can triple your profits by being all three. Right. That sounds straightforward, but if it were, you wouldn't have been among the first to do so in your space in a big way. <laughs> what was the climate then as it pertained to vertical retail? And what were the challenges to pulling it off for Lululemon? There were very few retailers, maybe The Gap, but even they were selling Levi's mostly. The real challenge of setting up a vertical operation is economy of scale production. 
If you're doing wholesale, you can make a line of clothing, then go sell it to a bunch of people. And then you have enough numbers in order to go to a factory and get it made. The toughest part with something like Lululemon is that really we needed to get to probably 10 or 12 stores in order to have enough volume going through before we could make any money. So I basically had to keep our prices low as though I was doing economy of scale production lose money in order to make sure that I had enough people buying the product to make sure I could put enough through the manufacturers to make my margin. So it's a kind of a suffering point of view, but it usually takes a lot of money. And we didn't have a lot of money, but I think we just had like a phenomenal product and I'd been doing production and designing and retail stores for 20 years. So I knew kind of the puzzle that I had to put together to make that occur. For another episode of the show, we spoke with Tim Brown, who co-founded the footwear and apparel company Allbirds. Yeah, I love it. Now, Allbirds has shown itself to be very committed to -to direct-to-consumer. It does almost no wholesale. It only sells through its website and now through a few dozen retail stores. But we asked Tim if he thought he could reach as many people as the brand had ambitions to by sticking to D2C in this way. And he cited Lululemon as the kind of template for how Allbirds could do just that. Chip? What do you make of all these really new, really cool, really successful brands? Are they right to largely steer clear of wholesaling and follow in the model Lululemon laid before it to insist on always reaching customers directly? Yeah, I think what we're seeing is a death of wholesale. If you had to look at the companies that are surviving now and the ones that are dying, anyone in wholesale is dying. You know, even to some extent, Nike and Under Armour and Adidas just got killed in the Sports Authority bankruptcy of 217. The only reason I think Nike did a sell your soul agreement with Amazon was to move that inventory. And once they moved that inventory, then they said, that's the end of our agreement with Amazon. They went on their own. And I think that you're seeing Nike move to that level. Lou Lemon's always been there and probably has got the purest brand because it doesn't sell to anybody else. So there's absolutely no discounting, total control of the brand and not having it go through wholesalers who interpret it as they want to, which I think is the death of brand is, you know, that's got to go by the wayside. I think e-commerce is just allowing everybody to go direct to consumer. Taking a quick break from our chat with Chip Wilson to bring you a recap of our first season of this podcast. If you have been with us since episode one, you have our eternal gratitude. But if you have missed even a moment of our show, you're going to want to go back to hear our chats with Steve Madden, the bombastic footwear mogul who talks about addiction, prison, and his story as it appeared in The Wolf of Wall Street. We also featured Danny Reese, the president and CEO of Canada Goose, who shared with us the unbelievable story of how At just 27 years old, he asked his own father to step down so he could take over as CEO and execute his vision for the future of the family outerwear business. And that's really just a tease of what we've covered here in this podcast. Also with Dylan Lauren, the daughter of Ralph Lauren and the founder and CEO of Dylan's Candy Bar. Tim Brown, the co-founder and co-CEO of Allbirds. And also Seema Bansal, the co-founder of the Instagram famous floral company, Venus A. Fleur. This show is brought to you by Shopify Plus, the enterprise platform that powers the very best brands in the market from Allbirds and Gymshark to Staples and Heinz. And if you like this podcast, if you like what you're hearing, you've heard me say this before, but please visit Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Reviews are still the number one way to support a show like this and make sure it gets in front of as many people as it can. So please take a minute to let us know what you think. 
And in fact, some of the homework I've given our listeners earlier in the season is already beginning to pay off. We asked who else we should talk to for this series, and we have had some great submissions from our listeners so far. Jen Rubio, the co-founder and president of Away. Brene Brown, the best-selling author and professor who you no doubt know from her TED Talks. And Chris Saka, the billionaire investor of Uber and Twitter. And of course, for a few years, he was on Shark Tank too. So some great names coming in. The people are making their voices heard. Please keep the nominations coming and include who you think our next guest should be in your review on Apple Podcasts. Now, without further ado, let's get back to Chip Wilson. Lululemon has a few outlet stores and its products do go on sale, but the company isn't exactly running buy one, get one promos. It isn't precisely known for slashing its prices all throughout the year. I'm just going to bet that all retail brands wish they never had to discount but it's only the ones with real clout, uh, Lululemon or Apple or even Yeti, the cooler company comes to mind. It's only these brands that rarely have to cut prices out of necessity. What was the philosophy behind your approach to discounting at Lululemon? My philosophy is every dollar you discount takes $10 off the market capitalization of the company. Mostly what happens is merchandisers and buyers are set up on a one-year bonus program as to how their margins or sales went that year, but that has no correlation to the brand value. And most CEOs I'd say that I see coming into companies don't understand that correlation at all. It's so easy to go on discount and to sell the soul of the brand over a three or four year period and make the numbers look really good, which makes the CEO look like a hero to Wall Street, but has really undermined the value of the brand. So in other words, if you keep discounting, then at some point people don't believe in your discount and they just, they don't buy when it is you want to buy. And it's been my experience that once every three years, either your designers mess up or your buyers mess up and you have too much inventory and you need to be able to discount. And if you've been discounting all along, then you can't discount when you really need to. Or you have a 2008 crisis or a COVID crisis when suddenly you've got a lot of inventory and you know you need to move that. And if you've got a weak brand that's been set up by discounting, then your chances of getting out of trouble are exponential. There's a semi-famous proclamation you've made once, Chip, and tell me if I've misrepresented you here, but you've suggested in essence that you're able to visit a retail store and within 10 minutes, you can confidently take stock of how healthy or unhealthy the company's finances are just by having a look around. Can you explain that to us and what you look for as markers of success or failure when you enter a retail store? Maybe it's the Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours that he talks about. I had had 10,000 hours of being in retail stores, manufacturing, developing people. And then to walk into a retail store, I can't even quantify it, but I think a lot of it is feeling. I can tell like if a light is out or lights aren't shining in the right place, or there's a dust bunny in the corner, or there's cardboard boxes sitting out when they shouldn't be, or how soon an employee in the business comes and talks to me and how they talk to me. There's a million nuances of things that occur in a retail store, and I think they just all flood in at one time. You said recently that you wanted to institute a buyback program while you're at Lululemon. It never happened during your tenure, but now we're seeing big brands like Levi's and Canada Goose announce that they're willing to buy back goods from the consumer and either repurpose or resell them. You've suggested that, if done maybe at the right scale, in addition to any obvious benefits from a sustainability standpoint, Buyback programs can actually be real money makers for companies. 
What's your sense for where this trend might go from here? You need a critical mass of apparel to make the whole business work. Only, I think, a company that has that critical mass can then take it and then do something with it. You can't have really recycling in a city until people had enough plastic and you have enough density where garbage cans can go around house to house and pick it up, pay for the gas for the truck to do it, and then go and recycle the plastics. Things like Blue Lemon now has got critical mass of clothing that's out there that's been used and enough people coming back and reusers. So if they could bring it back, maybe get a 10% discount on their next purchase, then Blue Lemon can take that and have a raw resource and, and recycle it. I think it works perfectly. At least in your most recent retail companies, you made efforts to really define your customer base in tremendous detail. The famous story is that one of the inciting incidents behind Lululemon was this news article you read about the rising number of female university and college graduates. And you began to imagine a new female consumer. She was young, professional, makes $100,000 a year, has her own condo, travels, is fashionable, works out 90 minutes a day. And that's kind of who you set up in your mind for who to picture as the model Lululemon shopper. You did this exercise again at Kit and Ace, and this is obviously a core strategy you believe in strongly. If I'm listening to this and I'm from a company struggling to know exactly who it is I'm selling to, what are the things a retail brand must absolutely know about its customer base before it can really find the right market fit? Well, I think what happens is companies get older or there's multiple owners or it's run by committee is that they end up with a muse or who their customer is that's too wide, too varied. When things were in wholesale, it was okay. You could kind of like, you'd sell to a wholesaler and that wholesaler may sell to 40 to 60 year olds. That one may sell to 20 to 30 year olds and you'd have a big enough line plan where they'd pick and choose and that type of thing. But I think as we went to vertical retailing and e-commerce, there's retail stores, there's a website, you can't be all over the place. So if you pick a specific age, specific income, sex, and you get really, really detailed, then who's ever developing the brand site knows how to develop it. If the person developing the retail store does it for a 25-year-old, but the people doing the brand website does it for a 45-year-old, you've got a disconnect in what the brand looks like. It's inefficient. You served as CEO of Lululemon until 2005, at which point you brought in outside investors to the company. Over the next 10 years, you accumulate a good chunk of your fortune, and yet your tensions with the board at Lululemon play out quite publicly. And you might agree that it's fair to say you had some significant disagreements about the direction the company takes before you ultimately leave in 2015. How would you characterize your relationship with Lululemon today? I think my relationship with the CEO is, is fine. We go for walks and talks. I just don't believe that they don't have anybody on the board that understands the business. That's really financially driven which is what happens to most boards because in order to fill out a audit committee, compensation committee, and governance committee, you need people that are more metric driven. A great brand like Lululemon, of course, the real money comes from the product, the innovation, and the brand. But the problem is with brand product innovation, it's not quantifiable. So if somebody comes with an idea that is not quantifiable to a board like that, it gets shot down. Which in what case, many, many great ideas happened at Lululemon. You know, the other analogy I give is that if the public analysts and the board kept telling Amazon, start by showing a profit, start showing a profit, like spend less. If Jeff Bezos had slowed down spending, then Amazon would only be worth half of what it is now. So let's say 
it, it'd be worth 600 million. Well, people around the world would go, that's a fantastic company. That's unbelievable. Well, what a great job the board did. But the reality of it is, is that if he would have stopped spending in order to become the best e-commerce company in the world, it would have only been worth half of what it is now. So when people say that something like Lululemon, well, well, it's an incredible company. Look at the value, but aren't you happy? I go, well, no, because it's only worth half the value than it can be because they stopped investing basically in the product, the people that sum it up. So you have expressed, if not regret, then you have expressed at least some remorse for how you felt outside financial interests affected the culture and trajectory of Lululemon. If I'm part of a brand that is fortunate to attract private equity money to help me grow, what might you advise from your own experiences for how best to take on funding without allowing the business side of the company and the product side of the company to develop a tension that kind of fundamentally changes the course of the brand? You know, as I look back at the owner of Nike, I think it's really important not to just take on money and think everything's going to be okay. At some point, the private equity people are going to want to get out. They want to go public. So you've got to know what the structure of the company is and who has the voting rights and who has the power once you go public. God say once the owner loses control of the vision and the culture, then the company just is on a route to become a mediocre company. By able to control A or B class shares such that the owner can control the quality and the type of people that are on the board, then that's the most critical thing to, to know about in the long run. So the year before you officially resign your duties at Lululemon, you have a hand in the founding with your wife and son, Kit and Ace, which sells clothing made out of this new fabric you call technical cashmere. Right. You set, by the measure of anyone who hadn't just spent 15 years creating Lululemon out of thin air, some lofty goals, I think we can say, most notably a billion dollars. Within five years, Kit and Ace envisions that it will be a billion dollar company. Now, Kit and Ace is still an active brand today, but it may never have reached those initial marks you set out to, and indeed your family sold its interest in the company in 2018. What lessons did you take from your experience with Kit and Ace? I think we knew everything, which was probably part of our problem. What I discovered is that even though I think we could have grown the company to a billion dollars, we couldn't have grown the culture organically at that same rate. Because we're a family that didn't really need the money, it's more like love and passion. And our underlying vision is really personal development of people that work for us. It stopped being fun. Number two is that we had my wife, my son, and I in as family, but we had three different types of leadership and three different strategies, and we weren't coming together and we couldn't agree on it. And we didn't have that structure set up in front to know how we were going to handle disputes. So either we were going to kill the family and we were going to be enemies together forever, or we sell the business and we go, okay, well, what did we learn from there? Let's start again in a different way. Chip, before we loop back towards some more timely business items to finish off today, I had something of a more personal question for you. In preparing for this interview, you know, I read a lot about you and your story. I think you know that there are a lot of good things that exist about you in the public discourse. And I think you're also self-aware enough to know that certain narratives about you seem to persist in the general reflections of you as a man and as a business person. Do you feel secure at present in your legacy that you'll be remembered in the ways you hope to be? I, I don't know. 
I know that if you look at what has occurred out of Lululemon, the hundreds of millionaires, and I think the hundreds, if not thousands of women, especially that were trained and developed at Lululemon at a time when no other company would invest in women who have gone on to set up their own businesses, been highly successful, had families, children, lived the dream. I think Lululemon started that whole thing out for women. And I think that anyone who worked for me or who knows me, that will be my legacy. But I'm not sure that I can ever overcome the whole social media thing that occurred. There's no way a man or a woman who has a point of view in this world can't have enemies. It's impossible for someone who foresees the future to say anything about the future without people that don't like change jumping on it and having their point of view. I was probably one of the first people for that to happen to. And it's still happening today. I mean, we're in a very weird social media world where free speech is no longer allowed. Another point of view isn't allowed. And really only if you're socialist or left wing or don't like change, Everyone has a point of view behind a screen of a computer. So I have to be happy with the legacy that I left with the people that I've known and touched and I'm thrilled for that. Hey, I'm Kristen LaFrance, host of Shopify's Resilient Retail Podcast. Look, 2020 was tough for everyone, but retail store owners have been hit extra hard. Because of the pandemic, quarantines, and limited foot traffic, it's never been harder to be a small business owner, which is why we made Resilient Retail. From real stories of struggle and breakthrough to the insights retail businesses need right now, Resilient Retail is a show about finding inspiration, taking action, and making your business future-proof. To hear more about how brands like Pattern, Mac Weldon, Lively, Universal Standard, and so many other businesses are staying resilient, overcoming challenges, and building thriving businesses, be sure to tune in to Resilient Retail on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Can I wrap up here, Chip, by having you appear in your crystal ball for us a little? Okay. You are widely considered to be the creator of the athleisure trend. And I know you're widely considered to be that because I lifted that exact quote from the intro paragraph to your Wikipedia page. <laughs> if we agree that in the late 90s and early 2000s, athleisure was the thing the consumer market didn't yet know it wanted, do you have a sense of what incoming trends in retail like that we ought to be paying attention to now? I think everyone's going to be wearing technical clothing of some sort. Unless you're in the very heat of the middle of the equator where I think really light cotton is the technical apparel that works, the rest of the world is going to be demanding clothing that one piece that you can wear all day long to a five-star restaurant into a workout for coffee to work the whole thing without changing. It won't stink. It'll stretch. It'll take all your vitals. It'll send messages to your doctor. You won't even notice that it looks like athletic wear. I think it could look like the cleanest of nice streetwear that we have right now, but it could even go back to suits and ties, which seems like a crazy idea to me, but it would feel like you had your athletic clothing on when you had your suit on. We spoke earlier about some demographic things, how you spotted that an influx of female graduates would develop a new consumer segment that was ripe to be served. What demographic trends do you look at today and say, that's an opportunity there. That's something the retail world would be wise to address. 
I think, and you can see it coming, Blue Lemon tried to do it 10 years ago. At 10 years ago, we decided that we were going to be the biggest male athletic company in the world in apparel, but it took them like eight years to kind of get around to figuring that out. I think that that's probably one of the bigger markets right now because men are following the fashion of women, but they're just like seven years late. Chip, last one here. Of all the things we saw affect retail and e-commerce over 2020, whether it was serious matters related to social injustice or public health or simply the ways in which we rely on remote work now for so much of what we do at present, what things in your view are just a matter of time before they mostly return to the way they were? And what things in your view are changes to retail and e-commerce that are here to stay? I think that rents are going to drop in half and you're going to see really vibrant streets where people can walk and socialize but you'll walk into a store and it'll be totally set up to present the brand physically, how the brand wants to be seen, not just the apparel, but the ambiance of the store, the music, the smell, how the people are developed and how they interact with the customer will be part of the brand. And then I think that people will have total choice on anything to buy e-commerce or, or buy there in person. Essentially, people are social. I think people do want to get out this movement towards social workout classes, which are mostly driven by women, quite frankly. But instead of like having a workout place, I think it's going to be a studio, a retail store and food. Because it's so easy to buy off e-commerce now, a retail operation has to have more of the experiential end. So if people are going to their workout classes, staying and buying some food, and there's like really great product to buy while they're there, they'll buy it. I'd like to thank our guest today. Chip Wilson is the founder of Lululemon, an investor, an author, a hiker, a philanthropist. He has many titles, but he has nonetheless been generous with his time and in his candor with us here. Chip, we're very grateful to have you on. Thank you for joining us on In Conversation with Shopify Plus. Well, thanks, Jason. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks again to Chip Wilson. And thank you again for listening. If you like what you heard today on our season finale, you do not want to miss going back through our previous episodes. If you have not already, Steve Madden and Danny Reese, among others, do not pull any punches in their talks with us. So subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And to find more of our interviews with guests like Damon John from Shark Tank, Roth Martin, the co-founder of Rothy's, and Seth Godin, the best-selling author, Visit us online at inconversation.shopifyplus.com.